0: through 52 this morning, and I've titled the message, Some Things New and Some Things Old. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Uh, We're in a chapter that has caused a lot of confusion for a lot of folks uh, through the centuries, really. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give grace as I teach now. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate teacher here. So, we commit our time of study to you, praying in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we have, are working through Matthew verse by verse. And, and I have been most excited about coming to uh, chapter 13 and a, and a deep dive, a deep study of the parables. And that's where we find ourselves here, chapter 13, the parables of the king. Matthew writes to show the Jews that Jesus is their promised messianic king as prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures. This Messiah would be a Davidic descendant who is both Lord God and human. He would be both deliverer and ruler. The first ten chapters of Matthew present various lines of evidence showing Jesus to be the true Messiah, His legal right, moral right, judicial right, prophetical right to the throne. But then, in chapters 11 and 12, we have the nation of Israel rejecting Christ as their Messiah. You see, he claimed to be Lord. So much so, he claimed to even be Lord of the Sabbath, Master of the Sabbath. But the religious leaders accredited his power to Satan and not to God. Jesus then turned from an emphasis on revealing himself to the nation at large to personal conversion, saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then again in Matthew twelve fifty, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, mother, spiritually speaking. The rejection by the nation as led by the religious leaders was met with a change of ministry by Jesus. You see, he then began to teach in parables, which was a form of judicial judgment. The parables concealed further kingdom truth from the fickle crowds rejecting him, and at the same time revealed it to true kingdom disciples. And so just by summary uh, review here, uh, note this. Uh, the first coming, the kingdom was offered. Of course, it was rejected. Then we have kingdom truth related to the kingdom delay period. Uh, that's the Matthew 13 parables. Those parables are really ultimately talking about this period of delay. And in that Context: we see a commingled condition, true kingdom children and false kingdom professors. Finally, at the second coming, the kingdom will actually come. But we live in this in-between time when the kingdom has been delayed. It was offered here. It will come here at the second coming. We are in between. That's what the parables are dealing with. And in Matthew 13, we have key new kingdom insights brought forth. And here's what they are, as you see overhead. Uh, Number one, true kingdom citizens are those who receive the word with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with perseverance. Number two, the inauguration of the kingdom has been delayed. And number three, during the time of delay, God is still building a kingdom people. But there are also many false professors, and God will sort it all out in the end. Those are the key points being made. Now, some have asked me about fruit. Now, we are not saved by fruit, but by faith alone. However, true faith brings forth fruit. Kingdom people bring forth kingdom fruit. So the question then is asked, okay, what is this fruit? Well, that's a good question. And I think uh, Dr. Michael Vlock has a very good answer. And he's quoting Brian Vickers. uh, Brian Vickers aptly, notes that the fruit of the Spirit is linked to the kingdom. It could justly be called the fruit of the kingdom. In my estimation, this is true because of the close connection between the new covenant and the kingdom. And I would concur with this. Kingdom fruit is essentially the fruit of the Spirit. And if a person truly has the Spirit, which all kingdom people now do, That is going to make a difference in your life, starting with a fundamental change of nature. Uh, as, As those who put our faith in Christ, we are now given a new nature, which is now wed to the Holy Spirit. And that results in a new creation in Christ. That's a fundamental change. This then works its way out in our life as a process. We are born immature. By the very nature of things, babies are immature, and they mess up, and they need to learn to crawl, and then to walk, and to run. They start being milk eaters, and they need to grow up to be meat eaters. So we're born immature, but then we grow in relationship to the truth we have come to accept. Yes, believers can and do stumble, but God disciplines all of His children without exception to build holiness into our lives. If you're without discipline, you're illegitimate, as the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 12. Well, we now come to the concluding 7th and 8th parables in Matthew chapter 13. And they continue on with the main theme of who will and who won't ultimately be in the kingdom. That is the ultimate issue in these parables. The time of kingdom delay is ultimately about who will in the future go into the kingdom many will outwardly join what we might call the kingdom movement. But in the end, only the true believers will be shown to be the true sons of the kingdom. And only they will go in. Remember that the parables of Matthew 13 are thematically introduced at the end of chapter 12 with Jesus saying this. Last verse, Matthew chapter 12. By the way, the Chapter divisions were not part of the original uh, text. Uh, They're helpful, but uh, the flow of thought continues here from chapter 12, verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Who has a personal relationship with Christ? Well, the one who does the will of the Father. This leads into the parables that drive home the main point of who is ultimately going into the kingdom and who is not. Jesus makes the issue personal relationship with him. And it's a lordship relationship that does the will of the Father. This defines true kingdom people. Not perfectly. Remember, we all come immature and we all stumble. We're all in process, but none of us are perfect in our practice. So the issue here is this defines true kingdom people not perfectly, but directionally as a way of life. And you know what you find as a true believer? When you get off track, you know what God does? He brings you back. He he works in your life, and and you are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, and he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God is at work in your life as a believer. Keep in mind that the church age is not the messianic kingdom. All true believers in the church age are headed for the kingdom, But the church is not the kingdom. The messianic kingdom is yet future and will be inaugurated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yet during this time, God is continuing to build for the kingdom. And people who get saved are kingdom citizens who will share in that future kingdom. Even though we're not in the kingdom, God is still working out his kingdom purposes in this age. Everything is moving towards the kingdom. It is the goal towards which the whole of history is moving with the ultimate issue of who will be there when it arrives. We now pick up our study, chapter 13, Matthew 13, verse 47. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind. Note the word again. There's overlapping repetition here for emphasis. This seventh parable is very similar in emphasis to the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in effect, it summarizes the main ideas of the entire chapter. Like the first two parables, which are the leading parables, it too is interpreted by the Lord, as recorded here in the chapter. Note that all three of these leading parables, those that are interpreted by the Lord... Have the main issue of who in the end is saved and who will go into the kingdom. That's the issue. This is the main idea in the parable of the sower and the soils, of the wheat and the tares, and also here in the parable of the dragnet. This is the big idea in all of the parables of Matthew 13. Once again, note the language is one of illustration. Making some connection to kingdom truth, saying the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, it's not saying we are in the kingdom, but rather making application of kingdom truth as it applies to this time of delay, the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. During this time of delay, kingdom truth continues to go forward. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the kingdom. And I'm continuing to pray, your kingdom come. I'm really looking forward to the kingdom. Uh, when his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not happening today, right? Uh, m- maybe it is in your little corner of the world. I'm sure in your own personal home, it, it, it's, it's kingdom, uh, kingdom conditions all the time, right? It's, we're not in the kingdom anywhere. After the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we find this being said in relationship to Jesus. To whom he presented himself, speaking of the apostles, to whom he uh, presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus still has the kingdom as the ultimate goal in view. And kingdom truth had application for these disciples who would be the leaders in the early church. But I want you to note this very carefully. A few verses later, we find the apostles wanting to know about the timing of the kingdom restoration. And Jesus said this. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He's talking about the kingdom. And they're saying, okay, we're wondering about the timing. Is it now? We've been waiting. We've been waiting for the kingdom. We were all preaching the kingdom. As it and, and now we're, we're still waiting. And he said to them, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. Even the children got that right here. It's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You see, the kingdom is still future. It's still coming. It is the ultimate goal. And the apostles wanted to know the timing, but Jesus says it was not for them to know. It will arrive at the time of his second coming, of which no one knows the day or the hour. In the meantime, during the time of kingdom delay, God's kingdom program continues on in dragnet form. This is a large outward collection of kingdom professors that develops. They are caught in what we might call the kingdom net, so to speak, claiming to belong to the kingdom, the kingdom crowd, the kingdom collection. They heard the kingdom message, and they claim to be part of the kingdom movement, claiming to believe in Christ as Lord. During the time of delay, there develops a massive outward kingdom movement, as already noted in the parable of the mustard seed. Interestingly enough, Christendom is the the largest religious movement in the world today. And as noted, this movement that becomes so large also becomes thoroughly leavened or thoroughly compromised in the process. The parable of the dragnet is illustrating essentially the same truth. In view is the big umbrella of what is commonly called Christendom in the broad, broad sense of the word, consisting of all who claim to be followers of Christ, all who claim to be ultimately part of the kingdom. The dragnet is the big net of the kingdom movement that catches all kinds of fish, that is, people, prior to the arrival of the actual kingdom. Now, living on the Sea of Galilee, the people were very familiar with fishing. Some fishing was done with a line and a hook. Uh, Some was done with a small net. But the dragnet in view was a very large net that required a team of fishermen to operate. This net could cover up to a half square mile as it was pulled around in a giant circle making a giant circle around the fish between two boats or it was tethered to the shore and maneuvered by a single boat working offshore. The point is, this was a very big net, the dragnet. The sea in the scripture often symbolizes the world and the kingdom movement driven by the kingdom message is pictured by this large dragnet. Now observe the emphasis here on every kind in the phrase gathered some of every kind. This is very similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares in that the good and the bad are initially commingled before being separated out in the final judgment. Verse 48. Speaking of the dragnet which when it was full, when it was full, again, gets to be a large movement, it's full. When it was full they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. The kingdom net, as it were, collects a lot of fish. And the different kinds of fish are described here as the good and the bad. The bad fish would have been considered unclean. In Leviticus chapter 11, verses 9 through 12, some fish were considered clean and some were unclean. The word bad can mean decayed or worthless. Now, various images in the parables depict really the same reality, namely that believers and unbelievers will be separated prior to the establishment of the kingdom. There will be no unbelievers allowed to initially go into the kingdom. Only believers at the coming of Christ will go into the kingdom. John the Baptist referred to this truth when he says here in matthew three twelve his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, the kingdom ultimately, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, those that go to hell, and so you 've got one or the other as far as the destiny, just as the chaff will be separated from the wheat, likewise the separation of the bad fish from the good fish represents the ultimate separation. Of the unbeliever from the believer at the time of Christ's second coming. Verse 49 So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. So Christ here interprets the parable. We don't have to wonder what's in view, he interprets it. The parable of the wheat and the tares emphasize the coexistence of believers and unbelievers during the time of kingdom delay while this parable of the dragnet emphasizes that in the end there will be a separation of the unbeliever from the believer with emphasis with emphasis on what will happen to the unbeliever now note that in the parable of the wheat and tares The harvest is said to come at the end of the age, as seen in verses 39 and 40. And here in verse 49, we have the separation of the wicked from the just, also said to happen at the end of the age. Now, the end of the age, in verses 39 and 40, is connected to the establishment of the kingdom, as seen in verse 41 and 43. So this is the order. Christ, at his second coming, comes in judgment. Where all that offend are removed, and then he sets up his kingdom in very close succession. So uh, note uh, the order of things here. We live in the church age, and uh, we are everything is ultimately moving towards the kingdom. The millennial phase segues into the uh, the eternal state. But here at the second coming, there is going to be a great separate. Who's going into the kingdom? That becomes the ultimate issue. Uh, The wheat is going in, the good fish are going in, uh, the sheep are going in. Whatever the figure is being used, the issue is who's going into the kingdom. Observe once again, the distinction is characterized by practice. The bad fish are described as wicked in their practice, while the good fish are said to be just or righteous. And this corresponds to the the tares being described as those who practice lawlessness, verse 41, and the wheat as those who are righteous, verse 43. And again, the tares are the sons of the wicked one, verse 38, while the wheat are said to be the sons of the kingdom, also verse 38. Thus, there is a consistent emphasis on good fruit for those who will go in to the kingdom. But the emphasis here again is, what about those not going in? Verse 50, the bad fish, the unbelievers, the wicked, uh, this is what's going to happen to them. Cast them into the furnace of fire, verse 50, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the ultimate destination of the bad fish who are the wicked. They are in the same kingdom net. This kingdom, great kingdom movement. In terms of profession, they're a part of the kingdom, dragnet. But when sorted out, they are proven to be unbelievers and are cast into the furnace of fire, which is a description of hell. This is the same fate that awaits the tares, as described by Christ earlier in the parable. Remember what he said about the tares? Verse 42, And we'll cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, the destiny of the good and the bad fish is the ultimate issue. And special emphasis is here made on the destiny of the bad fish being in the furnace of fire where there is ongoing misery described as wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is what we commonly call hell. You say, well, I don't believe in hell. Well, believe me, you will. You will eventually... And you will remember that you were here this day and, and you'll regret it forever. Take it to heart. He has ears to hear, let him hear. The Bible teaches that without Christ, people who die go to a place called Hades. Hades is the realm of departed spirits where they await the resurrection. The resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Everybody's going to be resurrected. Some are going to get bodies suited for hell, some are going to get bodies suited for glory. But Hades is the realm of departed spirits. And when people die, I'm talking about unsaved people, that's where they go. The torment section of Hades is temporarily a holding place where the lost are held as they await the final judgment of the great white throne judgment which takes place after the millennial reign of Christ. So again, uh, note, uh, prophetic overview here. We're in the church age. Old Testament first, now church age. People, tribulation, then comes the kingdom. Everyone who dies during this time without, without salvation, without knowing, goes to a place called Hades, a temporary holding place. Finally, when the kingdom comes, Christ's going to reign, but at the end of that millennial reign is what is called the great white throne judgment. And that's where if your name's not found written in the book of life, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And that's what it says here in the book of Revelation. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I can't imagine the experience of being there and your name not being in the book of life. And then being cast into the lake of fire. This is the ultimate destiny of all the lost, the lake of fire. Christ described it here in Matthew 13 as the furnace of fire. Note the graphic way Christ described this place, as a furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of constant torment, misery, and pain. I don't know about you, but I don't like pain. I'm not about that. People in this life often experience great pain. I hate seeing people in pain. I hate being in pain. I am the first one to call for drugs. (laughs) Mostly legal. Only legal. Only legal. (laughs) I hate pain. People experience great pain. And and lingering pain is terrible. And when we are in pain, we, we long for relief. Perhaps it can be numbed by drugs or helped with surgery, or whatever, whatever the case, we look for relief and give a great sigh of relief once the pain begins to subside. But hell is pictured as a place where there is never any relief, only ongoing, unending torment, painful misery forever and ever and ever. And if we love people, we must warn them. If they must go to hell, as Spurgeon says, they let them jump over our bodies and all of the, we'll do everything we can to try to prevent it. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They've been there for a thousand years, the beast and the false prophet, and they're still there at this point. And it says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Christ spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Christ spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Well, simply because he doesn't want anyone to go there. In Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, it says, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. In First Timothy 2.4, it says, God desires all men to be saved. And in 2 Peter 3.9, it says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Matthew 25.41, it says that everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the demons. The emphasis is that it wasn't even essentially prepared for people, but rather for the devil and his angels. But tragically, all the lost who join the devil and his angels in rebellion will also spend eternity there. It's a horrifying doctrine, almost too horrible to comprehend. But yet, if we're going to take the Scripture seriously, there's no way around it. Matthew twenty-five forty-six: these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. One's fate is one or the other. Either eternal punishment or eternal life. There's no middle ground. There's no purgatory. And there's no second chance. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment. That's why the writer pleads, Today if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond while you have the opportunity. John MacArthur says, The dragnet of God's judgment moves silently through the sea of mankind and draws all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny. Believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation. Most people don't perceive the great kingdom work that God is doing in the world today. They scoff at it. Most people are oblivious to the reality of the coming kingdom and the separation that's going to happen. But anyone who has rightly heard the word of the kingdom can't say they haven't been warned. The warning of Christ here is very strong. Verse 51, Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Now if the master teacher asks you if you got his teaching... I think it's probably very human to want to say, yes, yes, Lord. <laughs> Imagine if they said, no, 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 we really haven't gotten it. I kind of would like that because maybe we would give a little more explanation yet. But anyway, they said, yes, Lord. And clearly they still had much to learn. But evidently they had gotten the basic idea of what Christ was teaching because Christ didn't correct them and because of what he then goes on to say in the very next verse. The word understood literally means putting together. Uh, So the question was whether or not they were putting together the the new kingdom insights that Christ was presenting in the parables. It was like asking them if they they got it. But note that Christ essentially lumped all these things closely together as implied in this single question. It seems that the main points he was wanting to make were consistently overlapping as brought out in all of these parables. It seems there is basic continuity in what is being emphasized. Namely, the issue of kingdom delay, the condition of coexistence of true and false believers during this interlude, and that it will all be sorted out in the end. Verse 52. Then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. This is the eighth and final parable in the chapter. And it too uses the language of the kingdom of heaven is like. But this parable comes at the conclusion of all the other parables. And in essence is an application parable. Since Christ has just asked if they understood all these things, it appears that this parable is now making application In terms of what Christ wants them to do with this newfound kingdom information, the word scribe literally means, or literally refers to one who writes. However, scribes were also biblical scholars who were known as interpreters and and teachers of God's truth. In effect, Jesus is now calling these disciples who were privy to this special new kingdom insight, you guys are the scribes. You guys are now the ones with the knowledge. And they were those who now had this special kingdom insight as just given to them in the parables. Now remember earlier in the chapter what Jesus said? He said in chapter 13, verse 11, He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The disciples were those who are allowed to know these special new kingdom insights. Everyone who has come to know the full truth of the kingdom is like a householder or a homeowner who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. Now, the head of the household had the responsibility to provide for the welfare of his house out of the supplies that he possessed. And he kept these things in store And then as needed, he would bring them out and dispense them appropriately. These disciples were now, by virtue of their knowledge, in a position to dispense the treasures of kingdom truth, which were now in their possession. These treasures of kingdom insight would include both new things and old things. Both kingdom insights from the Old Testament and new kingdom insights as brought out in the Matthew 13 parables. And this requires discernment and properly dividing the word of truth regarding what is old and what is new. We need to rightly divide the word. Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Boy, as a teacher, you really take these things to heart because it's kind of like, was well, God going to approve of my work? Well, what's he looking for? Uh, A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Properly putting it all together. Kingdom truth. Old things, new things. I agree totally with Dr. Michael Vlock, whom I quote a lot because he's right. Anyway, we think the same. Matthew 13 does not transform the nature of the kingdom presented in the Old Testament, But it does present new truths about its timing and how it relates to this age. That is the point. The mention of both the new and the old is significant. Jesus is not merely restating old information already given in the Old Testament, nor is he giving only brand new information that relates to the kingdom. He's doing both. He is bringing together a proper mixture of both that unites the whole kingdom program in a unified whole, properly understood. Yes, there is information about the Messianic kingdom as already stated in the Old Testament. But there is also new kingdom insights not previously revealed. The kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament would indeed be established someday. That's Old Revelation. But not at the first coming of the Messiah. New revelation. The idea that there would be an intervening age of co-mingling between the first coming of the Messiah and His second coming was brand new information. However, a delay in the official inauguration of the kingdom at Messiah's second coming does not mean there is no kingdom connection with the time period in between. During this time of delay, God is in effect sifting out of the nations a kingdom people. In this process, lots of people gather under the broad umbrella, the broad kingdom umbrella. But in the end, God will sort it all out and only the true kingdom children will go in to the kingdom. Again, Vlach says, great summary statement here. While the Old Testament predicted both a suffering servant and a reigning Messiah, it did not explicitly state that there would be two comings of the Messiah, separated by a considerable period of time. Pentecost, speaking of Dwight Pentecost, puts it, quote, what the Old Testament had not revealed was that an entire age would intervene between the, kingdom, between the offer of the kingdom by the Messiah and Israel's reception of the king and enjoyment of full kingdom blessings. This age, Jesus describes, covers the period from Israel's rejection of Jesus through his return to earth at his second coming. Amen. The reason Jesus did not set up his kingdom at his first coming is because Israel did not repent and accept Him as their Messiah, Lord. They did not legitimately recognize Him as being God. In fact, God a very God. They did not see Him as Messiah God. They were not like the wise men who showed up to worship the newborn King of Israel. (laughs) No way! We don't accept your Godship, your Lordship. Although it was prophesied in the Old Testament name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Peter picking up on this shows that before a Messiah can come and bring in the kingdom, Israel must first come to repentance. Here's what he told the Jews, Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing, that's the kingdom restoration, may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive, he's got to stay in heaven, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, kingdom restoration, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. We know from the rest of the scriptures that that Israel will not come to true repentance until they are in the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble. That tribulation period dealt with at length in the book of Revelation. Under the crucible of the tribulation period, with the whole wide world rallied against them, Israel will finally come to the place of repentance and will call upon the name of the Lord, Joel chapter 2. Calling upon Jesus as their Messiah to come and deliver them. And then he will. So what do we see? Let me just summarize Those of you in the front row will appreciate it. (laughs) We have old kingdom truth. The Messiah will come, bring in the kingdom. Yep, we already had that. Israel would receive the kingdom. Yep, they already had that. But here's some new things to consider, to add to the mix. There's now going to be a time of kingdom delay. Citizenship in the kingdom is dependent upon having a personal relationship with Jesus. Introduces the parables. Only a remnant of those who hear will become kingdom citizens as evidence in them bearing genuine fruit. The time of delay will involve a commingling of false professors, true professors. The outward form of the kingdom professors will grow large, but at the same time become thoroughly leavened with compromise. Those who possess the kingdom will see the value of it, sell all, and buy in, and attain it. God's kingdom program during the time of delay involves the gathering of a great mixture of true and false converts that, that in the end God through his angels will sort out. And finally, proper kingdom understanding involves rightly dividing previous kingdom truth, Old Testament, and new kingdom truth as presented in the parables. The grand scheme of redemption history is all moving towards the kingdom. Get your duds on. We're going to the kingdom. That's where we're going. I'm looking forward to the kingdom. I I certainly hope so. Good grief. I'm, I'm... 64, 65. How old am I? Sixty-four. <laughs> you know, you only have so much time here. What about when you die? What about when you're getting all oh, it's all, all you know, it's all behind me. Oh, no, no, it's all ahead of me. I'm headed for the kingdom. I'm looking forward to it. Hope you're coming with. The kingdom is the grand scheme of the whole of Scripture. It's all about the kingdom. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Christ came the first time, offered it to Israel on the condition of repentance. But they did not receive him. The kingdom offer was then withdrawn and has now been put on hold, awaiting Israel coming to repentance. However, God's kingdom program still continues on in the sense that he is still building a kingdom people that will ultimately inherit the kingdom. In this time of delay, this is the great thing that God is doing in the world. He is saving a kingdom people that will one day share in the kingdom. This overlaps with church truth. All who are a part of Christ's church family will one day share in the kingdom and rule with Christ. In fact, my beloved church members... It's great to be a part of the church. You know why? We are the bride of the king. We are the queen who is going to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. Glory for the church. Yes, Israel is going to be prominent among all the nations, but I'll tell you, I wouldn't... We don't have a choice, but part of the bride. And that's the greatest privilege. The most intimate position with the king is the bride of the king, the queen, the church of Jesus Christ. So while it is true that we are building for the kingdom, we are not presently building the kingdom. The kingdom itself is yet future, and only the Messiah can bring in the kingdom. Our mission is all about souls who will eventually be in the kingdom. Christ taught us to pray for the kingdom to come. He taught us to seek the kingdom first. All of our service is ultimately about building for the kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is our destiny. In heaven, when Christ takes the scroll, representing the title deed of the earth, All of heaven gets excited. And the church at that point after the rapture is represented as being there in Revelation chapter 5. And here is what they do. I fully expect to be a part of this throng. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, the title deed of the earth, which is what is represented in the judgments that come upon the world. The day of the Lord is Christ is proving himself to be the Lord of all and taking it back what rightfully belongs to him. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. We live between the two comings of Christ during the time of kingdom delay when the invitation is going forth for people to become future kingdom citizens. Now many profess to be believers in Christ and thereby kingdom citizens, but there are many who fall on bad ground and bear no good fruit, proving they are not genuine. There are many tares who are counterfeits. There are many bad fish who in the end will be sorted out and gathered out of the kingdom and cast into the furnace of fire. In contrast, the true sons of the kingdom will shine forth in the kingdom and experience kingdom joy that is more valuable than anything else that could ever be desired. So here's what we have, an overview of what we've been studying. First coming, the kingdom was offered, rejected. Now, the kingdom of delay. The kingdom is delayed. Kingdom truth related to kingdom delay. That's what we have in the Matthew 13 parables. Kingdom truth related to kingdom delay. A commingled condition true kingdom children and false kingdom professors. All mingled together in this big dragnet. And finally, the second coming. Kingdom come. It will all be sorted out. In summary, that's what we've been studying this morning. Evangelistically, Christ warns he who has ears to hear, let him hear. To the true disciple who knows kingdom truth, Christ in effect says, share the treasure of your kingdom truth, rightly dividing the new and the old. Christ made it very clear. In the end, there will be those who go into the kingdom and there will be those who are cast into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And in the end, when the kingdom comes, let me ask you, where will you be? Well, where you are with Christ will determine where you will be. Christ invites all to come to Him and He'll give you rest. He says, whoever does the will of my Father is my brother, sister, mother. It's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus. It must be real as evidence by doing the will of the Father. You know, you got to want to. They say, well, I, I don't want to go to hell. You know, I have a friend who says, I don't want to go to hell, but I don't accept Christ either. Well, I'm sorry. There's no in between. And you got to want to. The last invitation of the Bible comes in Revelation 22, right at the end of the Bible. And it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. And then it says, whoever desires... Let him take of the water of life freely. you got to want to. Whoever desires. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It must be a heart commitment. As Savior Jesus died for all of our sins. As Lord over all, he arose again the third day. True believers believe on him as Savior and Lord and to them the kingdom belongs. Jesus told Nicodemus, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's always the hope of all the Jews to see the kingdom. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, this well-educated man, wealthy man, well-educated. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. And how does this happen? Well, Jesus went on to say in John 3:16 that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John, the gospel of belief, really begins very early. By saying this, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, that's his person. The emphasis here is his person, who he is. Who were born not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. You believing and born again go together. In your mind, I want you to back up for just a moment and get the big picture emphasis of Matthew to this point. Matthew begins by emphasizing the Virgin Mary is going to have a baby who will be named Jesus. And he will be called Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. As the forerunner, John the Baptist, comes bursting on the scene. He goes before Jesus, heralding out, Prepare the way of Yahweh. Prepare the way of the Lord, as he called the people to repentance. This was about the Lord, Yahweh. The Messiah who is Lord, and in repentance, accepting Him for who He is. This is the whole point of John the Baptist's ministry. Jesus then demonstrated his messianic lordship over nature, over disease, over demons, building to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus went so far as to declare himself lord even of the Sabbath. The nation of Israel rejected Christ's messianic lordship claims. And this is where the parables come in. As the massive fickle crowds were following him, Christ made it clear in in the Matthew 13 parables that not everyone outwardly following is going into the kingdom. That is the point. Only genuine believers, only true followers, only those who really know Christ as Lord are going into the kingdom. Massive crowds are deceptive, as illustrated in the parables. Only the good ground that bears fruit, only the wheat, only those who sell all and buy in with Christ, only the good fish are going into the kingdom. Only those who truly know Christ as Lord are going into the kingdom. That is the major point of the parables. No one can be neutral. Christ said in Matthew 12, 30, He was not with me, is against me. Either Jesus is a swear word, or he is the most highly exalted and revered person in the universe. The most probing question in the world is this Who is Jesus to you? Today, many are calling themselves ex Christians, proving they were never Christians to begin with. Others are embracing what is called progressive Christianity which is a misnomer. And really what this is, is a form of godliness that denies the lordship, life-changing authority of Jesus Christ. Multitudes of others in the big tent of Christendom have various nominal expressions of Christianity from Catholic to Amish to Celtic and lots of stuff in between. All of these in general represent 11 forms of kingdom followers that in truth are bogus. Only a true life-changing faith that recognizes Christ as personal Lord and Savior will get you into the kingdom. And so I ask you again, the most important question ever put to you, who is Jesus to you? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.